Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is December 17th, 2021, and as we're barreling into the holiday season, we saw some movement on the campaign for FDA's next commissioner and an update on pandemic vaccination policy. And I want to make a pitch to listeners right now to hang on with us until the last segment, because we're going to discuss a really interesting drug development issue that is just now emerging. First up, however, is Robert Califf's confirmation hearing. He, he appeared before the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee this week to discuss his plans and priorities for the agency. Sarah, you were part of the team that covered the hearing for us. What were your takeaways other than it must have been hard for the senators to see him because he was seated like as about as far away as you could get in the room. It looked like. <laughs> yeah, they did make a joke about that. I think um, early on, obviously, COVID, um, you know, trying to space people out a bit more. But um, you know, it was a pretty friendly, easy hearing for him. It was barely two hours. Um, you know, we. We know there's a few Democrats who aren't going to support him, but it was clear from the hearing there's going to be likely enough Republican support for him that he shouldn't have a problem getting confirmed. You know, in terms of policy, these hearings are always tricky because oftentimes it's in the um, nominee's best interest to not say too much, <laughs> you know, and kind of um, avoid saying anything in, in an effort to, you know, avoid saying anything that could potentially offend um, somebody who was going to vote for them. But he did talk about a few things that give you a sense of, you know, what he might do at the FDA. One thing um, that shouldn't really surprise anybody is he um, very often brought up the idea of like establishing a systemic approach to real world evidence generation. That was kind of a key phrase muttered by muttered sounds wrong but um you know he said by him a number of times but um he in particular he talked about i thought in an interesting way um and our colleagues who said i wrote about this um around accelerated approval um and perhaps using you know solid real world evidence to kind of confirm um you know whether accelerated approval products you know really have you know, met that clinical um, endpoint threshold that we don't see in the preliminary trials. Um, and I thought that was interesting just because there's obviously been a lot of um, kind of controversy around accelerated approval over the years, particularly um, a common complaint is that it just takes too long for companies to, you know, follow through on the post-market studies and oftentimes they have trouble recruiting for them. They take too long. Um, sometimes they don't even use hard clinical outcomes. So there's just been a lot of criticism. So if there is actually a way, um, you know, for real world evidence, perhaps of how to fill that gap, it certainly could be interesting. Um, Caleb also talked again, you know, he's a big um, proponent of real world evidence and he spent a lot of time at Verily between his last and at FDA you know, certainly kind of learning more about how it's used um, by various health tech companies and so forth. So um, I think we should expect this to be a priority issue for him, both and with accelerated approval and otherwise. Um, he was also questioned a bit about opioids. Um, that's been an issue that many members of Congress have felt frustrated with FDA over the years, and it 
came up and sort of made it more difficult for him to get confirmed his first time at FDA. It seems to be the reason Janet Woodcock is not going to be the permanent FDA commissioner. And, you know, Califf really pledged to do a quick and aggressive sort of big kind of review of opioids, including like even looking at, you know, labels and whether labels need to be updated. One thing I thought was particularly interesting is he made a number of comments, you know, um, talking about the problems with having approved many opioids um, for chronic use over short-term studies. Um, I think I found it interesting just because in general, I think FDA has, they they tend to not um, be willing to admit any mistakes in their past decision-making on opioids, arguing, you know, they did everything following kind of the traditional law and procedures at the time, um, including that most drugs for chronic use aren't tested very long term. So it'll be interesting to see what that means going forward. Um, he also had um, some pretty strong comments around his feelings on drug advertisement, which I mean, he was certainly um, clear about at other points in his first stint at FDA as well. But, you know, he again, he seemed to suggest potential interest in taking more aggressive action in that space and both dealing with kind of traditional TV, radio, direct-to-consumer ads and also thinking about social media, which he seemed to feel like has is in particular creating some safety issues. Um, and one thing that's sort of notable about the timing of his nomination and interest in this topic is that there's been a um, very, very long incoming sort of overhaul um, of, a, of a rule that kind of explains how companies must talk about like their major side effects and contraindications in advertisement. Um, and that's supposed to come out finally in the next um, year or so. So, you know, that gives him one opening to influence it. But also we all, we kind of know that the drug industry has been for years pushing to have more flexibility, not less than what they say um, about their products, because um, they feel like others can say more than they can, essentially, um, and that their free speech is limited. And so um, if they were hoping to advance that quest under an FDA commissioner, Califf, it doesn't seem like they're going to get a friendly reception from FDA. <laughs> Sarah, thank you for that uh, um, very uh, expansive summary. That was uh, we made you talk for a long time on uh, all that uh, all that stuff. It was a uh, um, you know sort of uh, um, you said the, the hearing was short, but your uh, um, your 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 depth of insight on it was uh, was long. So uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Am I the only one who was a little surprised that this was mostly tame? I mean, there were, you know, I mean, going into it, you know, we 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 expected, you know, questions about, you know, his kind of his industry ties, you know, and he did get one from um, Senator Bernie Sanders, but that was the only one. And but, you know, although a lot of times those are those types of issues are settled before they even get to the hearing, but. Um, that was a controversial topic we thought would get more play than it did. He, he only got one question about tobacco, which we thought was going to be a big issue because of all the the regulation around tobacco that's that FDA is working on right now and how that's controversial and so forth. Um, I mean, there was a whole lot of questions about drug development, which wasn't surprising, but 
they still outnumbered the number of questions he got about COVID, which was a little surprising. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I guess I'm curious why why we think he got an easy, you know, pretty much got an easy hearing out of it on this this time anyway. Well, I mean, that's why the uh, the Biden administration picked him is that they uh, they wanted someone who could kind of skate uh, through this whole process. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd done it before and, you know, sort of obviously sort of has, uh, um, as Sarah indicated, uh, um, a sufficient base of Republican support. And, uh, you know, they uh, um, uh, were uh, disinclined to sort of kind of make things uh, hard for him. So there was not a sort of whole lot of uh, grilling on things that could be, um, you know, potential uh, flashpoints there. You know, there was discussion of the abortion pill, which uh, a few days later sort of kind of FDA uh, changes policy in a way that, uh, um, one would imagine that many Republican uh, senators don't uh, don't like, and you know, uh, um, uh, it's a perhaps potential uh, um, uh, stumbling block on his uh, road to confirmation if that becomes a uh, a huge uh, you know rallying cry for uh, um, uh, pro life forces that sort of kind of he's uh, um, you know rolling back uh, um, restrictions on this uh, um, pill. You know, for the fact that they did it through kind of uh, um, they've already done it through kind of uh, in some ways helps them, but sort of kind of in some ways it sort of puts it more in the public eye and, uh, you know, could uh, create complications down the road. But, uh, you know, the um, the lack of controversy was sort of kind of the uh, the whole point, I guess, and sort of Republicans like him enough that they don't want to make it uh, hard for him to get confirmed. And uh, that's what we saw on uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I generally agree with Matt. Um, like, I wasn't super surprised that only a few people <laughs> really gave him a hard time. I mean, I was a little bit surprised that the COVID discussion was fairly testing diagnostic device center focus and not maybe broader, didn't veer into anything around vaccines or therapeutics, only just because, you know, one of these rallying cries around or push around, you know, getting an FDA commissioner nominee has been, you know, we're in this crisis. Um, we need permanent leadership at FDA. And um, the fact that they didn't have anything to really hit them on in terms of COVID um, outside of the testing at the moment makes you wonder if maybe um, is that just another sign? I think as some people have said that, you know, Janet Woodcock was doing perfectly fine um, acting and doing everything you would expect a permanent FDH commissioner to be doing right now during this crisis. Um, I don't know. I just I just was sort of surprised there was nothing they they could find um, outside of really the testing issues, which, you know, I think has, has been very known and well covered um, problem in this country for COVID. Well, and I mean, the vaccine issue is we're going to talk about coming up. I mean, that they, they've they've had their own kind of set of issues that have come up on, you know, as they've you know given the EUAs and modified the EUAs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you would think that there would be some questions about that, you know, that as well. And, you know, just in general, you know, trying to, you know, handle the, the crisis and, you know, how are you going to deal with the staff? How are you going to make sure burnout isn't, you know, become a problem and, yeah, none of that. None of that really came up. Uh, I guess. Yeah, you could certainly imagine a universe in which uh, he got a lot of tough questions about uh, vaccine safety and even vaccine mandates, which uh, you know aren't sort of particularly FDA's purview, but sort of obviously a political flashpoint and sort of kind of uh, that. Uh, that was not uh, um, uh, what they uh, what they chose to ask him about, and uh, you know part of that could be sort of kind of the uh, um, 
the dispositions of the particular senators on the uh, um, on the committee. Rand Paul was not there, uh, um, and uh, he's obviously uh, um, always one for fireworks on uh, on COVID when he uh, shows up at a hearing. So uh, um, in that sense, we're kind of Caleb perhaps got lucky on that on that front. He also didn't get a lot of. He got one food question and uh, didn't get the uh, the the what. I guess it kind of become a traditional food question, which was over genetically modified fish, because um, uh, because uh, um, Senator Murkowski wasn't there. Uh, but yeah, I, I was a little yeah. I, it, it seems like that they're going to press him on the, you know some of the non drug things. I mean, they're going to press him on the um, you know the 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 definition of what of milk um, and whether or not non dairy substances can use the word milk in the name and and so forth that you know after the the famous scott gottlieb quote that um, almonds don't lactate so uh, that that's probably going to be something that's going to come up too and probably take up some of his time um along with all these other all, all this other stuff so but again we'll be waiting for the uh, the committee vote on that and the and then the subsequent senate floor vote which um you know we I think I think a lot of FDA observers are hoping comes sooner rather than later because uh, you know we don't want to go too longer too much longer without a permanent commissioner. So uh, you know it's another uh, this is a one step and uh, hopefully the the next few are come uh, you know relatively quickly. Next up is a new recommendation on COVID nineteen vaccine administration from the CDC and the power of one word. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices decided this week that it would, quote, prefer, unquote, the mRNA vaccines, such as those from Pfizer and Moderna, over the Janssen adenovirus vaccine. The move was driven by the emergence of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome in Janssen vaccine recipients, which is a which is blood clots with low platelet counts. But interestingly, some members thought that, quote, preferred, unquote, was not strong enough. They were considering there was consideration of making the statement, quote, strongly preferred, unquote, but the committee decided against diverting from its past practice, which was only to use preferred. So stepping back for a second, deciding to recommend one vaccine over another is rare for the ACIP, and that is expected to be impactful in terms of administration in the U.S. and probably around the world. But I'm curious what you all think. Yeah, it, what you all think the impact of this decision is going to be? I know you know other countries look to like like to watch the U.S. for direction on these types of policies, but I mean, you know, in this case, do you think this will impact you know like kind of global use of the Janssen vaccine? I mean, I know like the conventional wisdom, right, is that um, countries do pay attention to what the U.S. is saying and doing and it, it may have some impact and I don't know you know how many people around the world might follow this news and on a personal level also be you know whether their countries decide to offer it or not but whether there's sort of a personal concern or they'll be more wary but I, I, I also know like in terms of supply um, issues um, for a lot of people around the globe it's possible this type of vaccine just may be the only option and it will be it won't be like people in the US where you can you have this option of MR, mRNA vaccine or J&J it, it will be it might be you know J&J or another adenovirus vector vaccine or nothing and I think that's um, that's a different calculus for governments and individuals. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's sad to say that uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy is not a uh, solely American phenomenon, and to the extent that sort of contributes to sort of kind of safety worries and uh, um, and the like, uh, um, there will be some following of the uh, of the lead on uh, um, on that, and uh, that'll sort of kind of you know uh, slow the global uh, distribution of vaccines, which is uh, which is too bad. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you start to wonder whether whether the world could could go without the the Janssen, you know, shot being a major player, you know, if everyone kind of followed, you know, the CDC recommendation, you know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that they, that I don't, I don't think that they could, I don't, I don't and I think most, probably most of the global public health people believe that they are going to need the Janssen shot, just like they're going to need the AstraZeneca and the Novavax one that's coming in addition to the, uh, the Pfizer and the um, Pfizer and the Moderna shots. So yeah, it's it's a t- another tough blow for for Janssen. Uh, they've they've had a few this year with their vaccine, um, trying to get it. You know, with with uh, with this with the TTS issue and Guillain-Barré syndrome coming up, and uh, then the the some of the FDA advisory committee committee members saying that. Uh, their vaccine is probably a two shot one instead of one, which was a big, you know, one of the things that they had touted when it was, um, you know, when it first came out. So, yeah, it's a, it's it's uh, it's going to be a difficult road. But, you know, maybe the maybe the road for is, uh, you know, largely XUS for them. I don't know. Yeah, one thing I thought um, and seeing some people's, you know, talking about the meeting yesterday is, you know, in the U.S., because initially J&J was thought of as a one-shot vaccine. It was targeted to certain populations um, that were maybe seen as like harder to reach or harder to get back for two shots and so forth. And, um, you know, the um, concern that those are also the population that might have the most trouble sort of understanding, you know, the risk-benefit trade-off of these side effects, but also maybe even like how to get access to healthcare if you have a, you know, if you have one of these health events due to the shot. So I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion with this on equity and ensuring trying to you know not wanting to make vaccine you know that deal with not make the equity issue any worse than it already is uh, with this because you know because like you said, Sarah, because the the one either the one shot vaccine has been targeted at certain populations because they're worried that they wouldn't be able to get get to them for the second shot or you know for you know various other reasons but yeah it's a that that'll be a you know an interesting um an interesting question to see how they how they um how they answer that how they communicate that and and so forth i also just uh, thought it was interesting sort of kind of what a small role fda has played in this uh whole saga with the uh uh, the Janssen uh, vaccine, you know, what is essentially uh, at least mostly uh, cover uh, um, FDA, but that's, uh, um, you know, it's it's a product safety issue. And, uh, um, you know, as you were pointing out, Derek, there's sort of a, more sort of a, a public health uh, concern and those sorts of things. But uh, um, you know, this was not an FDA advisory committee that was talking about this. This was, was a, uh, you know, CDC advisory committee. FDA very sort of quietly uh, put out the news of the uh, um the safety update and uh, um, just like with the, uh, you know, the pause back in uh, April, it uh, was uh, left to, uh, you know, CDC basically to arbitrate, uh, you know, how the uh, how the product should be used. And, you know, there's obviously that 
system exists for, for kind of, uh, um, you know, perhaps just this kind of thing where for instance, it's the uh, um, difference between for kind of deciding whether it uh, a product is worthwhile for an individual patient versus whether it's, uh, you know, worthwhile for uh, society at large to uh, to emphasize. But it's just uh, um, funny to me that for kind of that, uh, um, you know, FDA is for kind of uh, seen as sort of kind of the, uh, you know, uh, protector against uh, um, harmful products and it's not, uh, um, it's not, it's not part of this discussion uh, um, on this issue. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, I, I think like you were referencing Matt and Derek's story, how like, I mean, FDA didn't even really, I don't think they tried hard to like widely publicize the updated <laughs> safety info on um, the Janssen shot. They sort of buried it in this like daily roundup they put out of COVID news that in my experience usually is all things they've already released more or less, at least in the drug space, uh, in other ways, and then it makes that roundup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, I think, Derek, you paired it with some other things we've noticed recently, too, that they haven't, like, for whatever reason, felt the need to sort of very, like, broadly push communication on, like, in terms of their um, con- conclusion that, you know, the Moderna vaccine likely causes, um, presents with for a higher risk of, you know, myocarditis than the Pfizer vaccine and so forth. And it's just sort of interesting to me that, again, that this J&J situation could end in such a, you know, pretty strong recommendation from ASIP in favor of the other vaccines. And yet FDA didn't really feel the need to, you know, more publicly discuss their update and what that means and kind of clearly explain that to the public. Um, especially because I've noticed I've seen a lot of people criticizing just the communication around the J&J safety issue, because if you use the very technical terms for these types of clots and so forth, like most people, like if you saw that in a, you know, a form as you're about to, you know, sign whatever you sign to get the <laughs> shot or something like that doesn't mean anything to somebody. Right. They don't really right. know if that means they're going to get a scrape or something that could have a deadly side effect. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that that was that was one of the things that came up too. Is you know the first thing people say is nobody reads the the paperwork you know that they that they put out with this stuff and you know should we should we make a stronger recommendation because even providers and pharmacists and so forth a lot of times they either don't have the time to read it or don't have the time to explain it to the patients when they're coming in to get the shot because you know there's a line out the door or you know they just don't have you know, they, they've got a hundred other things to do at that time. So yeah, it's a, this, you know, I mean, we've, I, I can't, I, I keep forgetting how many times we've criticized the communication about the pandemic on this podcast. I mean, it's been, you know, <laughs> a constant problem, but this is just, yeah, this is just another thing that it's just medicine is hard and explaining medicine is even harder to people, you know, to, to people who don't, who aren't doctors. So yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, I have no idea how you communicate this. I don't know, you know, I mean, maybe that the fact that they just say, you know, the, the preferences for the other is for the mRNA vaccines is just that they hope that kind of eliminates a lot of the problem because when people see that, they'll ever, the knee jerk reaction will be, oh, I don't need to give the Janssen one. I don't even have to worry about it. I'm just going to give mRNA ones. Well, finally today, I want to bring bring up this really interesting issue that Bridget looked at this week. We're talking about drugs developed exclusively outside the U.S., in particular China, that want U.S. approval. Bridget, these types of situations usually raise a lot of questions. So why is this coming up now? 
Well, the thing that is driving this is the really astonishing growth of the Chinese um, immuno-oncology uh, R&D space, where um, a, a huge sort of bolus of uh, new products are, are coming um, out of China, and they uh, often have been studied only in China. And uh, thus, FDA's um, longstanding policy on approving applications that with foreign data only um, is really going to be test-bend to date. Um, and uh, FDA has, uh, by, by statute, uh, sort of three um, tests for accepting uh, NDAs and BLAs with clinical evidence that do not include U.S. patients. Um, the foreign clinical data needs to be applicable to U.S. population and to U.S. medical practice. The studies need to have been conducted by clinical investigators of recognized competence, and the data can be validated by an on-site inspection or other appropriate means. So uh, where this has, has really um, been an issue has been uh, in, in only a handful of cases um, where uh, the data has generally not been from China, but uh, from Russia and Eastern Europe, where there have been problems. Um, and uh, we know that um, Aveo Pharmaceuticals Fotivda, uh, ill-fated first um, NDA, uh, got turned back uh, for many reasons, but among them was that the uh, pivotal trial was conducted in Central and Eastern European in Europe, and they didn't think it adequately reflected U.S. practice. And uh, Tricida's Veverimer for uh, patients with a kidney dysfunction um, also uh, had a, a, a high enrolling Eastern European site that uh, FDA thought distorted the, the data and uh, it got a complete response letter. Um, then they appealed the complete response letter. Then they got guidance from FDA on another trial. Then they started the other trial. And now they don't have enough money to finish the other trial. So it's sort of a sad story there. Um, and then uh, sort of most recently, uh, there's this really um, probably doomed but interesting effort by uh, clinical investigators on big uh, TopCat NIH-sponsored trial of a generic uh, drug spironolactone for um, patients with uh, heart failure with preservative drug interaction, um, where they're trying to uh, get approval from FDA uh, or to seek approval um, based on uh, half the patients in a trial um, because TopCat had uh, half the patients in the Americas, half the patients in Russia and Eastern Europe, and they found serious misconduct at the Eastern European and Russian sites. Uh, an FDA um, advisory committee was, was not impressed with this argument. Uh, the successful examples um, are, are somewhat fewer, but uh, there's, there's uh, uh, Mitsubishi Tanabe's Radicava, which uh, for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, um, which had been approved in Japan, uh, and then FDA uh, actually contacted the company and, and worked with them to bring it to the United States uh, with the, the Japanese data package. Um, and then most relevantly for the current crop uh, is Beijing uh, received approval for a kinase inhibitor, Brukinza, um, for mantle cell lymphoma um, based on a trial uh, conducted in 86 patients in China. Uh, it's the first, it was the first approval of a product 
based so, with uh, data solely from China to receive U.S. approval. Um, the U.S. FDA uh, approval documents uh, really don't make a big deal of this. Um, you know, it seems to have been a, a pretty straightforward review, um, which uh, probably bodes well for Beijing's other pending application. Um, one thing I thought was interesting, though, was FDA pointed out that about half the patients in the trial took concomitant Chinese traditional herbal medicines. FDA thought that because those medicines would not be expected to have activity against mantle cell lymphoma, it wouldn't be a problem. But um, you can you can see that 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 might be something that could come up as an issue um, in in future reviews. Um, so and those uh, we are going to be seeing some real uh, examples of FDA decisions coming up uh, in January. Um, Akizo and Sino Biopharmaceuticals Penculimab has a uh, user goal date for um, third-line nasopharyngeal cancer based on a phase two trial conducted solely in China. Um, this is the first uh, Chinese-developed product to be included in FDA's real-time oncology review pilot program, uh, which is a program that really relies on trusting the source of the clinical data. Um, then uh, on February 10th, there's going to be an advisory committee review of Lilly and Innovent's uh, and, um, BLA for um, Centilimab as a first-line uh, product for uh, non-squamous, non-cell, non-small cell lung carcinoma cancer um, in combination. Uh, and that has a, a March user fee goal date, but that's probably going to be an area where we'll see some of these issues raised publicly and discussed. Um, and then in April, you've got uh, Junshi and uh, Coherus Toripalimab uh, for first line uh, nasopharyngeal cancer in combination, and for second line and later uh, as monotherapy. Both of those have um, breakthrough therapy designations, as does penpulimab for uh, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. That's a cancer that is more common in Asia than it is in the U.S., so it's sort of a logical area for, for these Chinese companies to be targeting. And then uh, in July comes uh, the standard review, user fee goal date for Beijing and Novartis Cisleilizumab uh, for second-line esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. That's a monotherapy uh, indication, but it is supported by uh, a phase three trial that included U.S. sites. Um, so, so that one, it'll be sort of interesting to see if that uh, changes um, how, how the application gets reviewed. Um, but uh, it's, it's really sort of, I think these are really interesting to look at, um, not just because of the foreign data issues, but because of FDA's concerns about um, PD-1 inhibitor oversupply um, and redundancy um, and uh, the desire of uh, Office of uh, Oncology Center of Excellence Director Richard Pazder um, to really uh, promote the idea of a unified regulatory framework um, for these problems worldwide. He's a really uh, spearheaded Project Orbis, the concomitant international review program 
Um, and our uh, colleagues from uh, Provision Policy have an interesting uh, article on a speech that Pastor gave at the uh, Virtual Biopharma Congress um, that touches on some of these issues, which were also uh, raised uh, concomitantly in a New England Journal of Medicine um, article on the Wild West of uh, PD-1 annuity development. Yeah, it, it's interesting you talk about the, you know, the, the oversupply of PD-1 inhibitors because I remember, and I'm sure, Matt, you probably still remember, FDA at one time was talking about how there's not enough Me Too drugs. And now they're saying, we got enough, move on to, you know, kind of move on to something else. <laughs> um, well, I think it's it's not just that there are too many drugs. It's that there are so many drugs that have really not great regulatory strategies for for public, from a public health standpoint, um, you know, one of the things that that uh, Pazder and his uh, colleague Julia Beaver say in the New England Journal um, piece is, you know, really talking about uh, close to half the um, immuno-oncology uh, indications approved by FDA um, have been for acceler- have been accelerated approvals based on single arm trials for unmet medical needs. Um, and uh, this is great for people who have, you know, third-line rare cancers. Um, but some of these drugs might do better in earlier stages. Uh, there's certainly more impact to be made in earlier stages. In many cases, um, we're not seeing. Uh, they complain that we're not seeing any head-to-head studies. Um, you know, so it's it, it's this sort of uncoordinated. Uh, explosion of growth that's really a problem that they they refer to a stampede yes the uh um i i love how uh pastor has sort of embraced his uh uh gunslinger uh reputation in this uh um, article with all those uh um uh wild west uh you know uh terms you know from the uh headline on down so uh um um it's uh, it's just interesting to see sort of a uh a, a very uh um uh, you know, strong effort to uh, get that made. Uh, you know, I don't think, uh, Dirk, as you were saying, sort of FDA was sort of kind of as uh, um, energized about sort of encouraging, uh, you know, Me Too drugs and say the uh, um, the, uh, um, the the small molecule space where they were talking about it before in terms of, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, more sort of uh, generally applicable uh, um, uh, uh, ap- applications. But uh, um, it's, uh, um, it's often sort of kind of a, Difficult for FDA observers to sort of to know exactly sort of what the um, agency is thinking because sort of the the, uh, the data points we have about an important issue are only a, a single uh, one. You know, say if there were just uh, um, one product like this coming up for review uh, next year, we'd have to sort of kind of uh, you know perhaps uh, um, you know determine sort of kind of what exactly the agency's attitude was about a uh, um, a whole class of products based on one. But now we have all these uh, these four products, uh, Bridget, that are going to uh, um, be uh, coming up for review, and uh, we'll get a lot of data points about it, and it'll be, I think, really uh, um, meaningful for uh, for sponsors and policymakers alike to uh, to see sort of kind of how the agency hashes all this stuff out. Yep, um, I think it. I think it will. Um, I think there was definitely a note of frustration in the uh, in in pastors speaking because there's only so much FDA can do. Um, at some point, you know, companies need to be making the decisions that they are going to test their drugs, you know, in combinations. They're going to test their drugs against the best available therapy, uh, you know, in first-line patients. Um, and, 
you know, if 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 people keep sort of picking off unmet medical needs with small populations, you know, there's you know, FDA can only evaluate each application on its merits. Yeah, yeah. just like we were saying on the uh, um, the uh, the vaccine issue earlier, that is for kind of what uh, you know FDA is for kind of set up to to do, which is to sort of look at the you know the patient data in front of them and sort of uh, um, compare it to that, and not sort of look at the sort of kind of uh, broader uh, um, you know public health implications, perhaps. Although they have sort of kind of very explicitly sort of moved that in that direction with opioids, uh, you know, and uh, um, you can see them uh, um, you know perhaps going there in other directions. But in terms of sort of, kind of as you're saying, kind of uh, some sort of kind of you know medical industrial policy, if you uh, if you will, in terms mm-hmm. of kind of how, yes. how they want uh, you know studies broadly conducted. I don't uh, I don't see the agencies really kind of being able to uh, um, impose its will on uh, um, on sponsors. There, this will be waiting mm-hmm. for uh, um, you know uh, Caliph's uh, utopia of uh, um, uh, you know for real world data that's going to answer all those questions that uh, um, that people have. Uh, you know, if these things do make it to the market and decide which one's uh, best in which circumstances. Yeah, I'm also curious how, you know, how, uh, you know, at maybe at the advisory committee level, you know, whether, you know, the clinical trial diversity um, issues that that um, Dr. Pazder brought up, um, you know, related to these, you know, kind of get addressed if they get addressed. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things, and, and this came up you know, during the pandemic as well, as Matt was talking about, where, you know, they, they were, the vaccines were criticized for not being, you know, for not getting the the kinds of populations that they wanted to get. And I'm curious if the advisory committee members will, will make light of that and, um, you know, maybe even, you know, suggest, make, make suggestions on, and, you know, either whether it's additional trials or, you know, uh, different designs or, you know, maybe post-marketing type of trials or something. I don't, I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious how they handle that. Regulatory creativity is not something we talk about so much, but we might have to. <laughs> that sounds like an it should be an oxymoron, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. If you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheep Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Bridget Silverman, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. And happy holidays. 